The following podcast is not meant for children or for liberals, even though that's pretty much the same thing these days. But that's what we're here for. Somebody's got to keep these brats in line. Anyway, you've been warned. It's the right opinion. These days, our media's either incompetent or malevolent. They don't believe in heaven, but they acting like they have been sent. Knowing the truth is way harder than telling it. We gotta work harder, gotta be more intelligent. Sometimes we just gotta grab a mic and start yelling shit. We're living in times when it's hard to stay relevant. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Boom. Welcome back to The Right Opinion right here on the therightopinion.podbean.com, hameenmediagroup.podbean.com, and ratsaladreview.com, as well as your podcatcher of choice. In all likelihood, just search The Right Opinion. It'll be the one with the thumbnail that's black and white and red all over, like the New York Times used to be. Welcome aboard, everybody. I am, of course, your host, Harrison Bergeron, and I, of course, have The Right Opinion for you on a variety of topics this week. A lot of bullshit has happened Since I've last been on the air, for those of you out there who reach out to me, and I do appreciate every single one of you guys that reaches out and wants more of the right opinion, now you can get it um, when it's not available in audio form. I'm now doing articles on my Substack, rightopinionpod.substack.com, and I'm actually routing all the podcasts through there as well. So if you subscribe, you'll not only get the new articles when they come out, but you'll also get uh, a blast. I believe it sends an email about every podcast episode that comes out. I am trying this out for the first time this week, uploading to Substack as opposed to Podbean. We're going to see how this goes, so bear with me in the event that there's any sort of technical issues. But the podcast should still be available everywhere where it was previously available. So thank you all for uh, for sticking with us through some changes and some time off here. There's been a lot of shit going on in the world. I'm going to get right into it right now. All right, so as I stated, there was a lot of bullshit that has occurred Since I last talked to you guys, but I don't know that anyone piled the bullshit quite as high as our folks over at 60 Minutes. Yes, they're coming for Ron DeSantis. We all know why they're coming for Ron DeSantis. He's a successful politician in in a state that's essentially a swing state. It's a close to a 50-50 state, even though I think at this point in time it's safe to say Florida is a red state. But nevertheless, Ron DeSantis down there killing it, widely recognized as having handled the COVID pandemic very well. Even the death Santas crowd can't seem to actually point to any numbers that are indicating that Ron is a terrible governor. Certainly not nearly as bad as some of the radical left-wing governors that were being praised for their efforts, the Cuomos, the Newsoms, the Wolfs, the Murphys, the Whitmers, all of which are seeing higher case numbers and all that sort of stuff and, uh, and have saw a substantial more deaths per million than Florida has throughout this whole thing. Ron DeSantis has done a good job. He's a Republican. That cannot stand. So the media has come for him at all conceivable turns. And uh, 60 Minutes just put out a straight-up hit piece on him. So we're going to play two clips here. We're going to play the clip that 60 Minutes played. Then we're going to play the actual clip from the actual interview. And it wasn't even really an interview because 60 Minutes asked uh, Ron DeSantis for some time, and he didn't give it to them because he's got better things to do like be an awesome governor, and uh, they caught up with him anyway at some sort of rally or press conference and asked him a bunch of stupid questions that made it into their 60-minute segment. But you'll notice they left out a substantial portion of it, and that, of course, 
happens to be the substantial portion that, as Ron would say, disabuses you of any false realities that 60 Minutes is trying to paint for you. So here first is the clip that 60 Minutes played, and then I'm going to play the second clip, which gives you the greater context. Then, uh, and you can you can tell me why they cut out this middle part. So here's 60 Minutes trying to attack Ron DeSantis. I met with the county mayor. I met with the administrator. I met with all the folks at Palm Beach County, and I said, here's some of the options. We can do more drive-through sites. We can give more to hospitals. We can do the publics. And they said, we think that would be the easiest thing for our residents. So but Melissa that. McKinley, the county commissioner in the Glades, told us the governor never met with her about the public's deal. The criticism is that it's pay to play, and it's governor. wrong, it's wrong, it's a fake narrative. I just disabused you of the narrative and you don't care about the facts. Now, if you're watching that broadcast, one might ask oneself, when did he disabuse them of any facts? I didn't hear him say anything that was factually contradictory to the narrative that they're painting. And by the way, the narrative that they're painting is that Ron DeSantis, governor of Florida, one of the most highly contested and well-financed states in terms of political campaigns, received $100,000 to one of his PACs from Publix, the supermarket chain. And this was apparently enough for Ron DeSantis to give Publix some sort of exclusive rights to the vaccine that they don't actually have, as you will hear him say in a minute here. He explains it in full detail. Publix is the largest grocery chain in Florida by, by a pretty substantial margin. A lot of the seniors that live in Florida that still haven't been vaccinated in particular live near a Publix. So they were trying to come up with new mechanisms to get vaccines into people's arms, and the Publix was a suggestion because there are so many of them, and people tend to live close to grocery stores because they tend to be located in population centers. I know this is difficult for some people out there to understand. The type of people that think $100,000 is enough to bribe Ron DeSantis are the type of people that don't understand this sort of thing. And, and again, Ron's going to go into it in a second here, so I don't want to go into such extreme detail. But if you listen to the clip, he says, I just disabused you of that narrative. Well, when did he do that? Somebody might ask themselves, hey, I, I saw the clip, and it doesn't sound to me like he actually stated any evidence that this pay-for-play story is nonsense. Well, here's the full context, and as you might imagine, 60 Minutes cut this out because... It's not good for their narrative, because as he stated, they're not interested in the facts, but we knew all of that already. Here's Ron DeSantis disabusing anybody of this pay-for-play narrative. Take it away, Governor DeSantis. First of all, when we did the, the first pharmacies that had it were CVS and Walgreens, and they had a long-term care mission. So they were going to the long-term care facilities. They got vaccine in the middle of December. They started going to the long-term care facilities the third week of December to do LTCs. So that was their mission. That was very important, and we trusted them to do that. As we got into January, we wanted to expand the distribution points. So yes, you had the counties, you had some drive-through sites, you had hospitals that were doing a lot, but we wanted to get it into communities more. So we reached out to other retail pharmacies, Publix, Walmart. Obviously, CVS and Walgreens had to finish that mission, and we said, we're gonna, we're gonna use you as soon as you're done with that. For the Publix, they were the first one to raise their hand, say they were ready to go. So CVS and Walgreens were doing vaccinations. They already had access to the vaccines prior to Publix. They were out there taking care of seniors, which is what Ron has been doing throughout the course of this pandemic better than anybody. And 
oh, by the way, he's got the oldest population uh, of any significantly large state. I think Vermont or New Hampshire or Maine, one of them up there, has a slightly older population, but not nearly on the scale of Florida, which I believe is our third largest state. So Ron has been taking care of the old people. He's been doing the long-term care thing. He's been getting vaccines in the arms of people who need it and had been since the beginning of this pandemic protecting those same people, the most vulnerable amongst us, the old people. But let's not let Ron do all the talking here because Ron can defend himself all day. But 60 Minutes was not only disabused of this narrative by Mr. DeSantis, but also by Democrats in the state of Florida. For instance, Dave Kerner, the mayor of Palm Beach County, released a statement criticizing the 60 Minutes piece for a heavily edited segment that aired Sunday night regarding Republican Ron DeSantis and the state's vaccine distribution program. I'm reading this from a Daily Caller article that will be in the show notes. Mr. Kerner said, I watched the 60-minute segment on Palm Beach County last night and feel compelled to issue this statement. The reporting is not just based on bad information. It was intentionally false. I know this because I offered to provide my insight into Palm Beach County's vaccination efforts and 60 minutes declined. That is the mayor of Palm Beach County, a Democrat, mind you. But no, no, we're not done yet. Yet another Democrat came forward. His name is, of course, Jared Moskowitz. And Jared Moskowitz is the director of the Florida Division of Emergency Management. He stated on Twitter, 60 minutes, I said this before and I'll say it again, at Publix was recommended by FLSERT, which is a... I believe the Florida like kind of emergency response team down there and Healthy Florida, which is the Florida uh, medical department down there, as other pharmacies are not ready to start, meaning CVS and Walgreens weren't ready to start because they had a long-term care mission that they hadn't completed yet. He goes on to say, period, full stop, no one from the governor's office suggested Publix, meaning that Ron DeSantis was not paid to play with Publix came in there and said, hey, let's give the vaccine to Publix for this $100,000 I got in my pack that's probably got close to a billion dollars in it. But, you know, $100,000, definitely enough to sell out, uh, I guess, his own constituents. I know, look, I know we like to think politicians are money-hungry, greedy bastards, and you're largely right. That said, $100,000 is a drop in the bucket. These are, of course, the same people that told you that Donald Trump owning $15,000 of a mutual fund that contained a small portion of Sanofi who manufactured hydroxychloroquine was enough for him to push a pill on the American people because he thought that he was going to strike it rich uh, again. Like, I, I don't know how many times the guy need to strike it rich in his life. And uh, why in God's name would you think that that was the mechanism by which he was going to use the presidency to manufacture more wealth for himself? It's very bizarre, but economics, logic, reason, not the strong suits of any of our friends on the left. And uh, yeah, not not a good look for 60 Minutes there to not only be completely picked apart by Ron DeSantis, but then to be picked apart by a couple of Floridian Democrats. Not great. But while we're still in Florida, let me move on over to Matt Gates. Uh, he is the loudmouth representative from Florida. Uh, he looks like a used car salesman. Listen, I don't want to waste a whole lot of time on this since the facts are still being explored in this case, but it looks like Matt Gates may have been involved in some sort of sex trafficking, and, and at that it may very well be some sort of child sex trafficking. It looks like there's some Venmo payments he paid to somebody who was, in fact, engaged in trafficking minors for sex. 
Uh, some of the details have come out now. It looks like the girl that he ordered from this particular person was of age, maybe. I, I mean, it's still not good. Obviously, this girl was still being prostituted or in some way, shape, or form trafficked, and if he was at all complicit in this, I, I think he most certainly deserves to be punished. I've never been a huge fan of Matt Gates, but as I've said in the past with a lot of the Republicans that I'm I'm indifferent about, they're in the foxhole with me, so I have a baseline respect for him, and he definitely pisses off the left, and for that, I appreciate it. Actually, in retrospect, him wearing a gas mask in the halls of Congress at the beginning of this pandemic was not only brilliant, but is historically woefully underappreciated, I think. I don't think anybody really knew how ridiculous this mask thing was going to get. It appears Matt Gates was ahead of the curve on this one. That said, like I said, it, it appears that there might be some chance that he is complicit in this. My standard's pretty clear on this. I, I don't care how much I agree with you politically, or for that matter, disagree with you politically. If you're fucking children, you deserve to die. And uh, and I'll, I'll settle for him being hung up in, in like a town square, and we can beat him with sticks. That's fine. If this girl wasn't underage, he still deserves to be punished. If he was involved in some sort of prostitution or human trafficking in any way, shape, or form, equally reprehensive. Well, not quite equally reprehensive, but a notch down from child trafficking, I suppose. None of this is good. And I'm not, a, and again, not the biggest fan of Matt Gates to begin with. There's, he's had some shining moments, but all in all, I'm willing to let this all shake out and see where this goes. He claims, to his credit, I suppose, that he's being extorted and that, I guess, his family's got some money and he's obviously a high-profile person here. Somebody's got some dirt on him, and uh, or at least they think that they have enough dirt on him to make it look like it's a legitimate claim. And uh, and it's not a good look for Matt Gates. regardless. The interview he did with Tucker was just utterly bizarre. Even Tucker was baffled by the whole thing. Um, not not a, you know Obviously not a great situation for Matt Gates, but we're talking about a media here who will completely lie to you about Ron DeSantis. He'll completely lie to you about Russian collusion and the president of the United States. They'll lie to you about what's going on with the current president, and they'll pretend that he actually knows where he is at any given moment in time. They obviously have no bones about lying to you about stuff. They've recently been exposed, or at least CNN has, as if this needed to be exposed, but we now have video confirmation of the fact that they lie to us, that they wanted Trump out, that was their main goal. They rode the COVID death numbers to higher ratings, and they were basically being dishonest propagandists at every conceivable turn. So when I see a story about Matt Gates, am I immediately jumping to his defense? No, I'm not. And I, and if it sounds like I, I have been, I'm certainly not trying to do that. But at the same time, I got to consider the source here. We're talking about intelligence community people. We're talking about anonymous sources. We're talking about CNN, MSNBC, Washington Post, New York Times, all groups of people that have lied to us in the past about much greater issues. It's hard for me to discount the possibility that Matt Gates is completely innocent and that they're just targeting him because he pisses them off and he's effective in doing so. So he must be, you know, slapped down, put in place and if not altogether removed from Congress. It actually sounded like he was looking to exit Congress anyway. Recently, there were some rumors that he might leave Congress and go to Newsmax, which I think would be a terrible move because I think Newsmax doesn't really have much longevity. But um, I don't know. I mean, Fox, Fox News isn't exactly the answer either. So until the blaze of the Daily Wire gets some sort of national syndication on cable, uh, I think we're unfortunately stuck with these two options for the time being. So let's move on from there to the Derek Chauvin trial. 
And then we'll talk about some of these other shootings as well. We'll kind of lump in all the police stuff all in one shot here. All right, so we'll start with Derek Chauvin, and then we'll kind of roll into some of these other more high-profile cases that have recently popped up. So the Derek Chauvin trial is not going particularly well for the prosecution. Uh, This should be of no surprise to anybody, right? Because you were told going into this that this was an ironclad case that under no circumstances should Derek Chauvin get off. He should get murder two. He should get murder three. He should get, you know, all these charges. People were trying to charge him with murder one, which would be really weird because they obviously don't know what that even means. But uh, honestly, I don't know that anybody knows what any of these things mean anymore. People look at the, the murder degrees like it's like a burn, for instance. They think it's like just varying degrees of of depravity, really. It's it's completely different charges across the board. Murder one requires some level of premeditation. Murder two requires some level of depraved indifference. And murder three is usually a felony murder, so murdering somebody or somebody dying while you're in the commission of a felony. We have no evidence that Derek Chauvin woke up on that day and was determined to kill George Floyd. So murder one is out, and thankfully they didn't charge him with that because it would have just been a waste of everybody's time and energy. Murder two, like I said, requires a certain level of depraved indifference. It's kind of a—it's called a, a depraved heart murder. So, for instance, if you shot a gun into a crowd— and you killed Bob, you didn't necessarily intend to kill Bob, but you showed such depraved indifference towards human life that your actions resulted in Bob's death, that would be murder two. Murder three, like I said, is felony murder, so they would have to prove that Derek Chauvin was aware that he was in the middle of commissioning a felony, and then George Floyd died as a result of the actions during committing said felony The evidence there is very shaky, which brings us down to manslaughter, which is the most likely charge that Derek Chauvin will get hit with in all likelihood. Um, Most likely not going to be enough for the rioters to stop burning the the city of Minneapolis. So good luck to the jury members and the judge and everyone involved in this, because I'm sure you'll be hunted down and uh, assaulted in some way, shape or form, whether it be physically or socially or psychologically. It's not going to be a good run for these people. God help them and their families, but at the end of the day here, there's a lot of facts that have come out about this case that people weren't fully aware of. Obviously, uh, there was a fair amount of people that were not aware of the the level of drugs that were in George Floyd's body, in addition to the fact that he had such deteriorated health as a result of all of the drug use. He had a, he had an arter, arterial, arterial blockage, uh, meaning like the, 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 the arteries that are pumping blood into and out of the heart. I guess the arteries pump blood back into the heart. Um, He has 75% blockage in his arteries. So any given event of extreme stress could have triggered some sort of cardiac arrhythmia, which is what one of the uh, medical examiners that testified said was the cause of death. So it wasn't asphyxiation. It wasn't the knee on the neck per se, or at least as far as the physical evidence shows, And as a matter of fact, throughout the course of this trial, we've discovered that Derek Chauvin's knee was not on George Floyd's neck for a bulk of the time. Um, All of these things point towards the full story obviously wasn't released to us. And look, I'm I'm guilty of this as well. When I saw that video the first pass through, I came on the show. I was pretty vocal about anybody defending this guy. I thought that, that this was a mistake. I thought it was quite clear that this guy murdered George Floyd. I didn't know all the facts. I jumped to a conclusion, and I'm not going to suggest that Derek Chauvin didn't play some role in George Floyd's death, 
but with all of the other factors involved, it's hard to say that Derek Chauvin knew for a fact that George Floyd was going to die as a result of the actions he took. The, the man was screaming that he couldn't breathe long before he was ever on the ground in the prone position with anybody's weight on him. I also discovered throughout the course of this trial that Derek Chauvin is not a particularly large man. Um, he's about 5'9", 140 pounds. Even if he had police gear on that was upwards of 30 and 40 pounds on top of that, we're not talking about a very large man. And we are talking about a very large man in the case of George Floyd. It's like 6'4", 6'5", 2-something. I mean, he's a big boy, George Floyd. So Derek Chauvin, in all likelihood, would have needed to apply a fair amount of his own body weight onto George Floyd in order to subdue him. Mind you, George Floyd was in the back of the car doing just fine until he started freaking out and screaming and saying he couldn't breathe and kicking out the windows of the car and asked to be put on the ground outside of the car. There's a variety of things that that obviously were not released uh, with the original footage and were not released with the original stories, and we're finding these out. And look, at the end of the day, might Derek Chauvin's actions have contributed in some way, shape, or form? Yeah, certainly. I mean, you could say a variety of things that Derek Chauvin did if he didn't do, George Floyd might be alive today. You can say an equal, if not significantly greater number of things that George Floyd did that day are equally as responsible for the outcome that day, involving, including rather uh, spending a fake $20 bill, taking a handful of fentanyl, kicking and screaming in the back of the cop car, resisting arrest to begin with. Even the people in the car with him were telling him not to resist arrest, and he continued to do so. And and I'll, I'll close the segment out here with a, with a little thought experiment that Ben Shapiro and Matt Walsh shared on the Daily Wire. I believe Matt Walsh first, and then Shapiro echoed it, and that's when I heard it. So if I were to give you the choice, you can either lay on the ground for nine minutes with a 140-pound man on your back, or you could take the amount of fentanyl that George Floyd had taken that day. Which would you rather have? Personally, I'm taking the guy on my back because the number of the amount of fentanyl that George Floyd had in his system would have killed any normal human being. He obviously built up a tolerance, but the amount that he had taken was about three times the lethal dose. So any normal human being that took that much fentanyl would probably die. Whereas if a 140-pound man kneeled on your back, your neck, your shoulders for nine minutes, ten minutes, you'd probably survive. Most people who don't have long-standing histories of drug use and mental issues clearly in some degree on top of all of the health issues that have compounded because of his drug use over time and the bad decisions that he made over the course of his life. And so, with George Floyd and some of these other more high-profile cases, I get back to one of my questions I like to ask on this program all the time because... These people, and you're going to know what I mean by these people in a second, these people seem to have something to say about every fucking issue except for these particular issues. Where are the feminists? George Floyd and his face is painted on the sides of buildings all across this country. The man had previously held a pregnant woman at gunpoint and now he's a hero of some sort. He's basically Rosa Parks, according to the left. You've got Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin, who sexually assaulted a woman in front of her child and 
presumably was going back to do it again when that woman called the police on him, and then obviously the police shot and killed him. This guy, the vice president called him. Kamala Harris called him and said she's proud of him. That guy digitally raped a woman, basically, in front of her child. That guy she's proud of. George Floyd on the sides of buildings all over the place. Um, uh, Dante Wright is a guy who was wanted on a warrant for choking and robbing a woman at gunpoint of the 800-something dollars that she had in her bra. I'm to assume a sex worker of some sort. And I was was told that they're a protected class by the left. So apparently the feminists have no interest in defending women when it comes to these guys, the George Floyds, the Jacob Blakes, the... uh, the Dante Wrights, even Adam Toledo, the 13-year-old kid known as Little Homicide or Baby Diablo, was a was a suspected member of the Latin Kings. The Chicago police stated that he had fresh Latin Kings tattoos on his body uh, when they when they did the autopsy or when they when they examined him after the incident re- uh, that that occurred in March. But I mean, listen, folks, if you if you think the Latin Kings are known for their great treatment of women, oh boy, do I have a bridge to sell you. But none of these guys are, you know, look, I mean, none of them deserve to die necessarily because of those particular actions. But those guys also, and actually some of them do deserve to die because of some of those actions. But they definitely didn't deserve to die months after the fact for an unrelated incident. Having said that, none of these guys did themselves any favors. George Floyd kicked and screamed and and fought every inch of the way. Jacob Blake was told not to go back into the car and grab the weapon that he was clearly grabbing while there were children in the car that he was potentially taking off with. Um, Dante Wright held a woman at gunpoint and choked her and took on the only money, presumably, she had on her. And and Adam Toledo is a 13-year-old walking around Chicago with a gun at 2 in the morning associated potentially with the Latin Kings. None of these guys are angels. None of these guys are Rosa Parks or Sojourner Truth or Frederick Douglass or Martin Luther King. But here they are being painted all over buildings and T-shirts, and they'll be on the back of NBA jerseys before you know it. None of these people are heroes. And again, that doesn't necessarily mean that the police have a right to kill them. But let's also provide the correct context here where these people were not good people. They didn't do what they were told. They did everything that they could to put themselves in the situations that they ended up in. And then when they ended up in that situation, we all go, oh, my God, it's the police's fault. You know, I understand that the police have potentially too much authority, and they potentially have too much weaponry, and I can understand everybody who under, who, who feels that way. I'm, I'm a libertarian at heart. I don't think that the state should be up in your business any more than absolutely necessary. That said, we all know what police do. We all know who police are. They're supposed to be trying to protect the community. They're supposedly this, this African-American kill squad. So if you're a black person and you interact with the police and your first instinct is to run or to kick and scream, you are the one that is told perpetually your life is in danger in these situations. Maybe act accordingly. And that goes for anybody in these situations in general. When has running away from the police ever resulted in a good outcome? When has that ever happened for anybody? Even if you get away in the moment, they're going to find you. There was a reason they were looking for you in the first place. How many times is this ever successful? When does it ever lead to a better outcome than simply complying and seeing how the legal system works out for you? 
And granted, I understand people's skepticism of the of the legal system. I still think that you'd be better off taking your chances with the legal system than running away from a cop who's supposedly trained and looking for a reason to kill you. That's what you think. Why would you possibly act this way? It is befuddling to watch these videos over and over and over again as if I didn't watch enough of this bullshit when I used to watch cops when I was younger. And then I got tired of watching the same five crackheads run away from the cops every night. And I really do feel like it's the same five crackheads. Thank God they canceled that show. They needed new material anyway. But at the end of the day, none of these people are heroes. Let's get let's get into to some of the specifics here. Dewante Wright, or Dante Wright, is a 20-year-old kid, gets pulled over. The cop, Kim Potter, thought she deployed a taser and shot the kid because she actually deployed her gun. This is a terrible mistake, and and the word accident gets thrown around. I think mistake is probably the better term. An accident implies like, ooh, the gun just went off. She pulled the trigger on this gun. She didn't realize it was a gun. You could tell by listening to the body cam footage that she didn't realize it was her gun. And yeah, it's a really dumb mistake. And no, this woman should never, ever be on patrol ever again. That said, mistakes happen. If Dante Wright didn't struggle, didn't try to get back into the car, if her partner had properly attempted to handcuff him and handcuffed him all the way as opposed to doing one arm and then trying to pass him off while also being right next to the cop to the, to the car door which allowed him to kind of shimmy back into his car all of this was there was a lot of mistakes that were made that day he shouldn't have resisted arrest the other cop should have should have handcuffed him at the back of the car rather than right next to his his driver's side door she should have deployed her taser instead of deploying her gun lots of mistakes were made it unfortunately cost this young man his life he was not an angel again but that doesn't mean that in this moment he deserved to die or that Kim Potter had the right to shoot him. But you could tell in the video, she's like, oh, shit, I shot him. Like, she definitely did not mean to shoot him. She kept yelling, taser, taser, to let her fellow officers know that a taser had been deployed. It was about to be used and to stay clear so they don't get electrocuted themselves. And then she pulled the trigger and realized, oh, shit, I have my service pistol in my hand. Now, another one of these situations, I, like many of you, thought to myself, how is this even fucking possible? We all know now at this point because of all the news coverage around it that typically officers are trained to have their service pistol on their dominant side. So yours truly is left-handed. If I were a cop, I would have my Glock on my left and I would have my taser on my right. So how is it possible that this one, and I'm not running cover for this woman. She deserves to be charged with manslaughter. She was charged with manslaughter. She deserves to be convicted of manslaughter. I believe she will be convicted of manslaughter. She was fired. She resigned. She was arrested. The justice system is working here, folks. This is not an instance where we need to be burning down the city because the justice system is actually working in this case. I hear all the time, well, you know, I understand mistakes can be made, but we need to have more accountability. This is what it looks like. So let the system run its course for once, and maybe you'll actually get the outcome that you want, which is this woman going to jail, which is where she belongs. This is manslaughter by definition. That said, I was wondering how it's even possible that she could have made a mistake like this. And so I was listening to Bongino this week, and basically there is a psychological principle, the name of which is escaping me at the moment, but basically it says, in an instance of high stress, an action that you need to take that isn't necessarily one that you take as often as, let's say, another action, uh, in this case, pulling a taser versus pulling your gun. 
in in most police forces, Dan approximated that you probably pull your gun about a hundred times to every one time you pull your taser in training. Why is this? Well, think about it from a police officer's perspective. You have one of three options, basically, right? Any given interaction you have with a citizen could require no weapon, which is the bulk of them. It can require a weapon. And in that case, 95% of the time, you opt to go with your service pistol because you most certainly, unless you have had the opportunity to gauge the situation and know you're dealing with a non-lethal weapon, you you would always opt for the service pistol because you don't want to be wrong in that case. You don't want to be shooting a taser at a guy who's shooting a gun at you. Police are always told to go one step up. So if you have a bat, they pull their gun. If they have a if they have a, a taser, you you know if they have if they have nothing, you pull your taser. They're supposed to always escalate one step up because they need to be in control of the situation, not the criminal in this particular case. Again, I don't love the idea that the state has all this power and us all this authority. And in and I'm sure there are people out there who abuse it. I'm positive of it. That's why we have internal affairs and things along those lines. And yeah, it could be said that those are just more cops covering up for their cop buddies. I get it. Believe me, ask any cop. They're not huge fans of internal affairs, though. These guys are up their ass all the time. They're the cops for the cops. And as as many people have disdain for the regular police, regular police have disdain for the internal affairs. They kind of look at them as snitches within their own community, or at least that's what I've picked up from watching Law & Order. That said, uh, in this particular case, like I said, Kim Potter was arrested. She resigned, and, and she will see charges and in all likelihood get convicted here. The justice system worked. Let's just let it work. Then we move on to Adam Toledo, who was shot back in March, but we're now just finding out about it now because some HD camera footage was released about it. We see the footage of Baby Diablo, or Little Homicide, as some call him, running into an alley at 2 in the morning. He's clearly got a gun in his right hand, and he runs up to a break in a fence, basically, and he tries to ditch the gun while the cop is telling him to put his hands up. He kind of does it all in one felt swoop. You could see in the footage, if you slow it down, he's got the gun in his right hand, and then he kind of swings his body around and throws the gun with his right hand behind a fence, but as he's turning back around, he puts his hands up in the air. The cop told him to put his hands up in the air, but as the guy turned around because he had just seen a gun in the kid's hand a second ago, and the kid did turn around rather quickly and get his hands up, which, again, the cop did instruct him to do, but the cop doesn't know that the kid doesn't still have the gun in his hand because he threw it behind a fence and there was no way for him to see that his hand released the gun and that the gun fell you know several feet away from him behind that fence there what a 13 year old kid is doing out in two in the morning with a gun you may ask I don't know but that certainly isn't in and of itself you know meriting a death sentence but don't run from the police don't have a gun don't make sudden movements while cops are chasing you with their guns drawn these are all things that can be done to avoid instances like this, but nevertheless, little homicide, you know, took his took his chances, and it didn't end well for him. You could tell even in the video in this instance that the cop knows that he fucked up here, and and frankly, I don't really know that he fucked up. This might have been a good shoot. Even, I believe, legal analysts on CNN said that, look, in this case, there's really no way for the cop to know that that gun is not in his hand, and the kid raises his hand rather quickly, and he does raise them kind of up in front of him as opposed to maybe out towards the side or up over his head. He, he could have avoided this by doing anything differently than he had done them. But most certainly, 
it was it was a bang bang moment. You know, if you're you, if you're baseball fans, you know, there's like those bang bang plays at first base where it's really hard to tell whether the guy caught the ball first or the guy's foot hit the bag first. Whatever the case may be, it's one of those calls where it's super super hard for an umpire to make in live time. Imagine being an umpire whose life is on the line in that moment. You're looking down potentially the barrel of a gun. You've got a suspect running into an alley. There were shots fired moments earlier, which is why you were called onto the scene to begin with. Here's this kid, 2 in the morning. He's got a history, if you even know who he is. He's running around with a gun in in a dark alley. This is a, a lone cop running after him, too. The guy really didn't need to put himself in that position, but he does because he's a police officer. And this kind of gets me back to cutting the police a little bit of a break. Look, again, I'm not a huge fan of the amount of authority that they have. I'm not always a fan of the tactics. Yes, I fully recognize that there are cops out there that take advantage of the power that they have. But here's a guy who ran into an alley after a kid with a gun in the wee hours of the morning and put his life in danger to try to make sure that the people of this neighborhood are safe from idiots like this kid. He didn't have to do that. I mean, I guess he does because it's his job, right? But he didn't have to sign up and make this his job. He didn't have to be a cop in Chicago where it's practically a fucking war zone. This guy was in a position where it was potentially his life or the kids. And even if he, he, I mean, there was a no-win situation for this guy, right? Like he either gets shot and potentially dies or he shoots this kid. And even if he's in the right, he's going to be painted as a racist monster. And he fucking knows that because he watches the news. (laughs) It's not all that difficult to put that together. You could tell immediately the guy knows his life is ruined because he was forced into a situation where he had to make a life or death decision. And at the end of the day, he chose his life and he chose Adam Toledo's death. And I defy anybody to tell me that they would have made any different of a decision in that case. It's real easy to watch still frames and slow-mo video and go, oh, well, he dropped the gun and put his hands up. Why did he get shot? Well, because of all of the events that led up to that moment and the fact that the kid tried to be slick and tuck the gun behind the fence and and try to get away with not, you know, with without having anything on his person, even though they probably would have found that gun shortly thereafter, and it undoubtedly would have had his fingerprints on it. But he's a 13-year-old kid hanging out at 2 in the morning in Chicago with a gun and potentially associated with the Latin Kings. I'm going to go out on a limb and say he's probably not a fucking rocket scientist, but hey, that's just me. Speaking of guns, let's talk about Hashtag gun control now. Yes, it's back, folks. It never dies. It is the song that never ends. Cue Lamb Chop. Uh, uh, Don't worry, Podbean. I'm not actually going to cue Lamb Chop. You're not going to get a strike on me on this one. Usually, guys, when I tell you I'm talking about a topic, I try to fluff up how much I know about a particular topic. Oh, well, you know, back in the day, I was a a debate team... uh, top 10 in the state, blah, 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 and I try to, you know, try to fluff up my knowledge. I want to give you some idea that I actually have some level of authority on these subjects. I'm going to do the opposite here. I don't know anything about guns. I know very little about guns. I can tell you, other than the times I've been in the presence of a gun that was on the hip of a police officer, I've been in the presence of a gun once in my life, and I'm going to tell you this story briefly. I was in West Virginia, Joe Manchin country. I was down there visiting a good buddy of mine. He was uh, going to college there. I decided, my buddy and I and our third friend who drove down there with me, to take an eighth of mushrooms and hang out with a bunch of people I didn't know in a place I had never been. Obviously, one of the better decisions I've ever made in my life. I'm walking around this kind of frat house sort of thing, and uh, 
I walk upstairs. I'm trying to find my buddy. Again, I don't know anybody, and I don't know where I am because I've never been there before, and now I'm tripping balls. I'm walking around, and I, I'm looking for my good friend. I open up a door in the upstairs portion of the house, and there's about five guys all standing there around a CD case doing lines of coke. And uh, I look over, and there is a shotgun just propped up casually in the corner. Now, mind you, I'm in West Virginia, so this isn't probably all that uncommon for them. But from uh, a nice, you know, New Jersey boy who's never been in the presence of a gun that wasn't on the hip of a police officer. And mind you, I don't know these people. They're now doing cocaine, and I'm tripping my face off. I immediately went, no, and I closed that door, and I turned around, and I ran out of there like the fucking boogie monster was behind that door. I was terrified. So I know less than nothing about guns. That said, I still know a fuck ton more than 90% of the liberals talking out there about this issue like they have any idea what the hell is going on. So let's dispel a few myths here. Um, many people talk about this, but particularly Shannon Sharp, uh, former tight end in the NFL, said this on ESPN recently, recently, that it is easier to buy a gun than to vote. This is, of course, completely inaccurate. Um, anybody who's ever voted knows that they don't do a background check when you go to vote, and anybody who's ever purchased a gun knows that they do, in fact, do a background check and make you fill out a bunch of forms in order to get a firearm. So, Anybody telling you that it's easier to vote than to get a gun is completely out of their minds. It is, in fact, even easier to vote than get a firearm in some of these states where the Republicans are suppressing the vote with their Jim Crow 2.0 laws, which we will most certainly talk about in just a minute here. So it is not easier to buy a gun than it is to vote. That's just silly. Uh, Let's move on to loopholes. So the gun show loophole. There is, of course... No such thing. This has been debunked over and over again. No one can actually point to a law or any wording in a law that suggests that such a loophole exists. Anybody who's ever tried to buy a gun at a gun show can tell you that most of the people there selling firearms are federally licensed firearm dealers and will, in fact, have you go through a background check should you try to purchase a firearm from them. You know how I know the gun show loophole isn't real? Because of all of the mass shootings that they cover all of the time, precisely zero of them have been from guns that were purchased through some sort of loophole at a gun show. Because if that were the case, that's all you'd ever hear about. That's not a thing. It's not a real thing in any way, shape, or form. Now, if you're talking about a guy who goes to a gun show and he pulls one of the vendors aside and says, Hey, buddy, you know, I'd really like to buy that gun from you, blah, blah, blah. And that guy sells him that gun. That's illegal. That just shouldn't be happening. Um, There are person-to-person sales that are allowed. For instance, I could sell you a gun. I can give my gun to my kid when she's old enough to have, you know, old enough to possess one. But those things are completely different than a commercial sale of a firearm. And frankly, person-to-person sales of firearms shouldn't be illegal because we shouldn't be giving the government a big list of everybody who has guns, which effectively would be the case if we had to run a background check for every single solitary person who was acquiring a gun every single time they acquired said gun. Look, at the end of the day, they want background checks so that they can have a registration. They want registration so that they know who has the guns, and they want to know who has the guns so that when they come for the guns, they know where to look. This is not difficult. This has only been done over the course of history about a hundred times. But we're just going to roll right into this and assume that it'll be different this time. I'm sure it will be. Actually, I don't. Moving on from there, the Charleston loophole. 
This is, of course, in reference to the Charleston shooting at the church where Dylan Roof uh, walked into a black church and shot and killed nine people. This is, once again, not a loophole. Um, Dylan Roof would most likely have passed the background check anyway, according to most people. He had a minor offense that he was uh, he was still being charged with but hadn't actually seen a court date for yet, but it wasn't uh, a charge that had more than a year's minimum sentence, so he was still eligible to purchase a firearm at the time. And let me just tell you what the Charleston loophole actually is. It is a law put in place. It's known as the Charleston loophole now because of this Dylan Roof shooting, but basically what it says is that if you go to purchase a firearm and it takes them longer, than, and by them I mean the federal government, the FBI, if it takes them longer than three days to return your background check, you're entitled to take the gun. Well, why is that, Harrison? That sounds sort of crazy, right? Like, you're supposed to have background checks, and if you could just get a gun without them completing the background check, that sounds that sounds like it's not exactly the safest possible measure, and you would be correct. That said, what's to stop the government from just holding up your background check? Let's say there's no legitimate reason to keep you from having a firearm, but, oh, you know, we just couldn't run that background check. Sorry, buddy, you're going to have to wait another week. They could do that in perpetuity, and there's absolutely nothing you could do about it. So to ensure that the government doesn't just drag their feet to prevent you, otherwise known as infringe upon your Second Amendment rights, they have a window, which, by the way, was actually recently proposed to be shortened by Republican lawmakers because, let's face it, you can run a background check in about five minutes on the computer now. So there's no real need for there to be a multiple-day layover for you to get your fire on. They could, they could run a background check for you right then and there, while you're filling out the paperwork, and you can be in and out of the gun store the same day with your firearm in hand, fully verified and ready to go. There's no reason for you to have to wait three days, but in the event that the FBI or the government decides to drag their feet and make you wait, if they wait, make you wait longer than three days, you get to just take your firearm. So it behooves the government to do these things faster to make sure that people like Dylan Roof never get a gun, even though, again, in this case, there's no evidence to really suggest that Dylan Roof wouldn't have been able to get the gun had the background check been completed in short order anyway. This is a law that is far from insidious and, as a matter of fact, is ensuring that the government doesn't infringe upon your right to bear arms. Another myth here. Gun camp companies can't be sued. This is, of course, incorrect yet again. So gun companies can be sued. If you buy a gun and it fires backwards and blows a hole in your face, you can sue them because the firearm that you purchased was not up to snuff and did not perform its intended purpose correctly. Now, can you sue Smith & Wesson if somebody walks into a post office and shoots a bunch of people? No, because the gun itself did what it was supposed to do. It was just used improperly by the operator, and that is not Smith & Wesson's fault. Nor can you sue Ford if you decide to drive your Ford Focus into a group of people. Those group of people cannot sue Ford. It's not their fault that you use their product improperly. So gun companies can be sued. They, can, they, they simply can't be sued when their guns are being used improperly by users because, as we all know, guns don't kill people. People kill people. And sometimes they use guns. And that's not the gun manufacturer's fault. That's the fault of the person who's killing people with said guns. See how that works? So gun companies can be sued. This is a fallacy. By the way, the same people complaining about the fact that the gun companies can't, can't be sued were more than happy 
to give uh, complete and utter clearance of all liability to the vaccine companies that are uh, that are out there, Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca and Johnson and Johnson, all these companies that generated the world's fastest and potentially most miraculous vaccine in the history of the world. If you believe in such things, which I kind of do, kind of don't. At the end of the day, we I, I think we know where I'm, I stand on it, but I think I have vaccines in the show notes a little bit later on, so we'll talk about it then. But these people were more than fine to remove all liability from the pharma companies that are pumping you full of vaccines that are still essentially experimental, even by the FDA and the CDC's, uh, you know, recollection of this whole situation here. But at the end of the day, they're happy to give the pharma companies complete and utter, uh, you know, hold harmless. Basically, they can't be held liable for any of the the side effects from these vaccines. But the gun companies which can be sued, apparently can't be sued. It's almost like these people aren't in any actual touch with reality. Which brings me to last but not least, ooh, ghost guns. Ooh, they're scary, guys. They sound like ghosts. No, that's not Casper the Friendly Ghost Gun. Those don't exist, I don't believe. But what are ghost guns? So, you can buy a kit online, basically. That's It's almost like an 80% assembled gun. And you get like a bunch of different pieces, you get a barrel, you get a trigger, you get, you know, all that sort of stuff, and you assemble it yourself. This is not very easy to do. It's much easier to find and steal a gun from somebody than it would be to manufacture your own gun in this ghost gun way. That said, as 3D printing gets a little bit more advanced, it's going to be a little bit easier for people to make these ghost guns. It might be a problem somewhere down the road. It's not currently, but... It's not illegal for you to make your own gun. You can make your own gun right now. It only becomes a problem when you then sell that gun to somebody else because you're not a commercial firearms manufacturer. So you you can run yourself into a lot of trouble if you make a gun and it fails and you know sells to somebody else or whatever the case may be. They also don't want people in their basements manufacturing guns for gangs and things along those lines. So there are certain restrictions on uh, on manufacturing your own firearms. But the big deal here is that the, these guns don't have serial numbers, which is, uh, in in a lot of people's cases, they think like, oh my God, it's like one of those brown bag specials late on Saturday night, you get, you know, in, in a dark alley and it's got the, the serial number filed off and it's like, it's this untraceable gun. Well, most guns aren't really traceable via their serial number anyway. They only really go back to the initial point of sale. So that when the gun company, when your gun store bought that gun from the manufacturer, that's really where the serial number begins and ends. I mean, even when that sale goes to you, you could then totally legally sell that gun to a neighbor, to a friend, pass it down to your kid, and no one's going to ever know that that gun is no longer in your possession until that gun potentially shoots and kills somebody, and then they try to trace it back and they go to you, and, oh, yeah, I sold it to Uncle Bob, who may, for all I know, have sold it to seven other people by now. So the serial number isn't as great of a tracking device as people like to think it is, and ghost guns are not nearly as prolific as people like to make them out to be. For instance, it costs a lot of money to make one of these things. You need to have a certain drill to be able to center a barrel and drill a hole in it because that's part of the thing that you need to do to complete the process is literally drill the the barrel of the gun into a shaft of you know metal basically you need to be able to to do that yourself which requires a lot of equipment a lot of time and a lot of skill that most people don't have and frankly probably shouldn't execute because you know if you make a gun wrong that's going to end potentially very poorly for you it's not something I would recommend for most people so again I don't know much about guns. 
but I still know a fuck ton more than these talking heads and the politicians that are out there pushing hashtag gun control now. We can continue to talk about common sense gun control, but it just doesn't appear to make much sense. It seems to be going the same way as common sense in general. It's just simply not all that common. That said, let's get into Jim Crow 2.0, moving on from guns to uh, to the complete and utter gaslighting around the Georgia voter suppression law and blah, blah, blah. It's going on right now. This, uh, this whole situation is so fucked up that Chris Christie has become the voice of reason. And yeah, I'm from New Jersey. And yeah, I'm not a big Chris Christie hater, but I don't like it when he te- when he speaks on the national stage. I don't think he should be representing Republicans. I really don't think that anybody from New Jersey speaking out about anything is helping anybody's cause. As much as I like New Jersey to a certain extent because I've grown up here, I, as I've told people in the past, never is a politician from New Jersey ever going to do anything significant on the national stage. We just have a shit reputation as a state. And the more and more I live here, the more and more I look around, maybe we fucking deserved it. But Chris Christie... As the voice of reason, here he is on ABC News with George Stephanopoulos. He was sitting on a panel talking about Jim Crow 2.0, the new voter laws in Georgia. And he breaks this down rather succinctly, which is why I'm giving you this clip. So uh, former Governor Fatso, take it away. Chris, let me begin with you. You have a baseball affiliation now, one of the newest members of the Mets board. Was this the right move for the MLB? Listen, it's just a symptom. George, it's a symptom of what's going on in our country right now. I mean, let's talk about what the Georgia law is really about, uh, because we haven't had much of that. Dropbox has now become a permanent part of the Georgia landscape. They were not prior to COVID. They are now. Minimum of 17 days of early voting, including two Saturdays and two optional Sundays. You're going to have all voters being able to have multiple ways to prove who they are. Driver's license, last four numbers of your Social Security number, even a utility bill or a free ID provided by the state of Georgia. Um, and voting is going to be till from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m., as it is right now in Georgia. This is what so we what call. So what is it a symptom of? It sounds it's, it's like you're a against symptom of. It's a symptom of this, George. And 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 I, and I hate to come in here this morning to say this, because I sat here and listened to the president's inaugural address, and I just want a couple of real quick points from it. Politics need not be a raging fire that destroys everything in its path. Every disagreement doesn't have to be a cause for total war. And we must reject a culture in which facts themselves are manipulated or made up. And Joe Biden's broken his own rule 84 days. And now he's lying to the American people, George. He's lying about this bill. He's lying to the American people about it to cause the raging fire he said he was going to put out. I'm very disappointed. Yeah, he's very disappointed because he's been playing this like I'm a moderate thing because he and obviously was such a, a, a radical, vocal, conservative voice that he's trying to like play the middle now and. Okay, Chris Christie has no long-term realistic destination on the national stage unless a Republican gets back in and decides to make him AG, which would be sort of laughable given the whole Bridgegate scenario and the Beachgate scenario. This isn't exactly a guy who's always historically been so great about following the laws himself, nevertheless, uh, or never mind the fact that he was caught sneaking M&Ms into a stadium once, which was just sort of hilarious and something I like to bring up whenever I talk about Chris Christie, but he was talking about how Major League Baseball moved the All-Star game from Atlanta, Georgia to Denver, Colorado. couple things on this. First and foremost, Denver, Colorado has, and Colorado more broadly, has stricter voting laws than anything that was just passed in Georgia, as does, by the way, the state of New Jersey, an extraordinarily blue state at that. 
we have more strict voting laws than anything that was just passed in Georgia. So why aren't people boycotting New Jersey? Why aren't people boycotting Colorado more broadly? More importantly, I thought this was all about black lives and black votes and all that sort of stuff. They moved the game out of Georgia, which is, I believe, about 50% black, or at least the Atlanta area is, and they moved it to Denver, Colorado, a city that is about you know 10% black or less than that even. It's really ridiculous that they decided to do all this, and no one seems to be calling them out for the hypocrisy or, for that matter, for the just the, the short-sightedness of all of it. Again, if you wanted to move it to a state where the voter restrictions were less restrictive than the voting law in Georgia, your point might have had some standing. But when you move it, a state that has more restrictive voting laws, it seems like maybe you missed the point entirely, and that's probably because you didn't actually have one to begin with. So as Chris Christie said, this law makes it easier in a lot of respects for people to vote while simultaneously securing the election. So voter ID is, in fact, required, as racist of a concept as that apparently may be, If, for whatever reason, you're one of the black people that liberals don't think are capable of obtaining an ID, you can provide your driver's license number, you can provide the last four digits of your social security number, something all legal American citizens should have, by the way. Uh, You can provide a copy of a utility bill that you pay to the address on file for you that would also prove your ID. And if you don't have any of those things, the state of Georgia will provide you with a free ID, removing any conceivable excuse anyone has for being unable to obtain an ID. But it's racist somehow, because liberals think black people are too stupid to be able to obtain an ID themselves, which is really weird, because I know a fair amount of black people, and none of them don't have ID. That said... Another thing here is that this immortalizes the drop boxes. As Christie pointed out, there had been some drop boxes prior to the 2020 election in Georgia, but not quite as many as will now be implemented moving forward. Obviously, there was an expansion of that because of the COVID situation. COVID's not hopefully going to still be a thing in 2022 and 2024, so they scaled back the drop boxes, but those drop boxes are still more plentiful than they were prior to the 2020 election, again, making it easier for people to vote. They also expanded early voting to 17 days prior. And like Chris Christie mentioned, there's a few optional additional days that could be added on there, making it up to 19 potential days, giving you more than two weeks, almost three weeks to cast your ballot early. Look, I know color people time is a thing, but I, I have to tell you, I have faith in my fellow Americans, regardless of their color, that they can get a vote cast more than two weeks in advance of an election that, by the way, uh, we used to just vote on election day. Like, we used to just vote on election day. Now we've got all this early voting and all this sort of stuff, which kind of removes October surprises from the table. But then again, if the New York Post is going to be censored when they deliver an October surprise, I guess none of that really matters at the end of the day. But here's the bottom line with this bill, and I'm going to be very clear about this, hopefully. If you think this bill makes it harder for black people to vote, you don't have a very high opinion of black people. Further evidenced by the fact that you continue to lie to black people about how this bill is disenfranchising them when that could not be further from the truth, unless, of course, you are of the liberal mindset that black people are too intellectually inept to be able to get an ID and present it to somebody to prove that they are who they say they are. I know the liberals, they all look alike, so you would think that we would probably want to decipher one from the other when it comes to voting. So, here we are. 
So that's the Jim Crow 2.0 that, again, the, the, the narrative is so stupid that Chris Christie became the voice of reason there. So we got a couple more topics, and then I'm going to wrap things up here. Let's get into the J&J vaccine pause. So, again, I'm not taking the vaccines. I don't care who makes them. I don't care, you know, what the mandates end up being. It's just not happening unless somebody physically ties me down and forces one into my arm. It's not happening anytime soon for yours truly. Might might that attitude change 10 years from now when there's a lot of research and I'm up there in age a little bit more and a little bit more at risk, assuming this virus is still really around and prevalent in any way, shape, or form? Yeah, I might change my mind. I'm not doing it anytime soon. I'm young and healthy, and I'm not in any real risk from this disease. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense for me to go out of my way to take any additional risk to prevent a disease that I'm not really at any risk for or from, I guess, in the first place. And the same goes for many of you, I'm sure. That said, the people that tell you the science says are applauding this vaccine pause, and I'm very puzzled by this. So we had six cases of a potentially deadly blood clot that resulted from these COVID vaccines. In the case of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine specifically, which those of you who know a little bit about the vaccines know the J&J is the more traditional DNA-based vaccine where they actually have a dead copy of the virus in there, and that hopefully you know prevents the, uh, the cells from the virus to forming in your body and yada, yada, yada. It gives you some level of immunity, helps you develop antibodies in advance of actually getting the disease. That's the idea behind the traditional vaccine, as opposed to the mRNA vaccines, which are basically coding your RNA to, to basically fight the disease if and when you ever come into contact with it. Um, but the more traditional vaccines, some people seem to think uh, they're a little bit more comfortable with it because it's not quite as new technology. That said, the vaccine hasn't been as efficient, at least according to some of the studies, as some of the other ones. And then we saw this big issue with the blood clots. Now, how big of an issue is this? Like I said, we had six cases of a potentially deadly blood clot. In one case, it was deadly. So we had one death out of six cases. How many people got the J&J vaccine, you might be asking yourself? 6.8 million and counting. So we've got six cases, all women, by the way, between the ages of 18 and 48, that saw some sort of blood clot after getting this vaccine. That's one out of every million plus that saw this particular side effect, and they're pausing the entire distribution of the vaccine as a result. Now, I'm, you know, if you're one of those six people, obviously, I'm sure this hits home. But if you're one of the other 6.8 million people that had this vaccine with minimal to no complications, you might be asking yourself, is this really like how we're doing this? We're breaking this down for a one in a million chance? More importantly, as I stated, all six of the people that saw these blood clots are women between the ages of 18 and 48, an age where women tend to be taking birth control of some kind. And birth control happens to have a 1 in 1,000 instance of blood clots. So we don't actually even know that the vaccine caused these blood clots in the first place. These women could have all just been on birth control. And maybe a combination of the birth control and the vaccine caused the blood clots. That's entirely within the realm of possibilities. Or maybe all these women were just on birth control and their birth control gave them these blood clots. And it has nothing to do with the vaccine. Furthermore, as I said, you're looking at a case here with one in over a million cases 
saw the blood clots with the vaccines, whereas birth control sees a one in a thousand cases has some sort of blood clot, yet birth control still readily available the last I checked. And apparently, according to some women who were commenting on this online as I was following along through this theory, which is an interesting theory to say the least, um, is that apparently there is no one type of birth control that's better than the other. Uh, OBGYNs and the type and you know lady doctors that are out there prescribing lady products for lady patients, uh, biological lady patients at that, and the occasional man who may be bleeding from his what once was a penis or vagina or now is a penis. I don't know how's that work. Do you still bleed once you turn it into a penis? I, I actually pause. I don't need to know. So the science tells you that birth control is more dangerous than these vaccines, yet birth control is is readily available. It's about a thousand times safer than these, or a thousand times more, uh, a thousand times more likely to cause these blood clots than the vaccines. But again, that's still available. We aren't pulling that off the shelves, but the J&J vaccine is coming off the shelves when it could very well be birth control that's causing these blood clots and not the vaccine to begin with. Again, these cases aren't popping up in men. And they aren't even popping up in women beyond the age range where you would assume that they could be taking birth control between 18 and 48. So there needs to be some more research done there for sure. But to pause the vaccine effort when the same clowns that are telling you everybody needs to get vaccinated are telling you that 6 and 6.8 million is enough to pause this vaccine it seems like everybody involved in these decision-making processes are not particularly good at risk assessment or they're just looking to confuse the public to continue to create a dependence on them so that the more confused we are, the more we look to them for help. And then uh, and then we all obviously just do whatever Fauci tells us to do. We'll talk about Fauci in just a minute. But before we do that, let's leave the vaccine topic here. We are now at corporate blackmail, ladies and gentlemen. This is just full-scale corporate blackmail going on. And yeah, I know. A lot of you don't love the big corporations. I'm not a huge fan of all of them. Obviously, I've, I've been pretty vocal about my distaste for Google and Amazon and Netflix and Facebook and Apple and whatever else and Nike and the Major League Baseball and Delta Airlines and United Airlines and the list goes on and on. But I'm not a huge fan of watching these left-wing lunatics in the media and for that matter, celebrities trying to basically blackmail corporations into giving them money Otherwise, they're racist or something. So we had Diddy. Yes, Sean P. Diddy, Puffy Combs. He's a bad boy for life. And uh, he is the owner of Revolt TV. And he wrote an open letter on Revolt.TV to corporate America, basically saying, Dear corporate America, if you love us, pay us. And he goes on to bitch about General Motors apparently has touted that they work with black-owned media for some of their advertisements and blah, blah, blah. One of those companies that they work with is Revolt Media, but it takes up apparently a very small portion of their advertising budget goes towards Revolt Media. And Diddy's offended that he's not getting a bigger slice of the pie, so he's going to blackmail based on the concept of race, saying, look, yeah, I mean, you guys want to tout that you're helping black-owned businesses and stuff, but you only give us this much money. I mean, if you really loved us, you'd give us a lot more money. Now, you would think somebody as financially savvy as Diddy would understand that GM is not going to pay a bunch of money to advertise on a network that no one watches. And I'm pretty sure he's aware that no one watches it because he owns it, and I'm fairly certain that he could see the numbers on his end of things. Also worth note is that, you know, not for nothing, you tend to market towards people that you need to get the word out to. Every goddamn music video in the world is a fucking Escalade commercial, 
why would GM waste any money advertising on a network that basically does their own advertising for them? Is that, yeah, like I said, every music video's got a fucking Escalade in it. Who do you think's making those? It's GM, and GM doesn't need to advertise on Revolt TV because hip-hop videos basically are GM commercials for them. So there's no real reason for them to expend an exorbitant amount of money on a channel to advertise to a market that's basically already aware of their products. Not to mention, you know, at the end of the day, we're talking GM, we're talking trucks, we're talking this, that's the other thing. You know, not, not to stereotype all that much, but it seems to me that white people are probably more the target market for the big trucks and all that sort of stuff. Again, the the portion of the black market that is interested in those sorts of things and has the means to afford them, they're very much aware of these products. They really can't escape them. That said, the trucks and things along those lines really made more for construction work and all that kind of stuff. It's more of a it's more of a job that you know it's certainly a larger number of white people participate in because there's a larger number of white people in the United States. So, also, by the way, is the last I checked, black people don't exclusively watch Revolt TV. I'm pretty sure they watch, like, normal television like NBC and Fox and ABC and CBS and things of the like. So that audience can be reached by giving money to the bigger networks that more people watch. And that way they can cover the white audience, the black audience, and the Hispanic audience, and the Asian audience, as opposed to just targeting the sliver niche population of people that watch Revolt TV. Basically, GM knows what they're doing, and uh, they're they're doing just fine, and they don't need Diddy blackmailing them, saying like, "Oh, if you love black people, you're gonna write me a fatter check." My God, it's like he, he's gonna be in the membership of he's gonna be in the leadership council of Black Lives Matter before you know it, because uh, he's clearly learning some lessons from Patrice Con Colors, who is the uh, the the recent. Black Lives Matter woman who's made a lot of news because she's been buying all these expensive houses in rich white neighborhoods all over the place and then still claiming that this is somehow in line with her Marxist ideals. It's very, very weird. Then we go from Diddy to the New York Times where apparently everybody at the fucking paper wrote a single article. There's like nine people in the byline here. And they were talking about CEOs that didn't sign a letter condemning the voting rights bill known as Jim Crow 2.0 in the state of Georgia. So now it's not good enough to be out there and be an activist. If you're not an activist, they will go out there and they will find you and they will drag you into the battlefield of activism. Otherwise, you're obviously a racist or something as well. So if you, as a CEO decided that you didn't want to ruin your brand by getting involved in some sort of heated, overly charged, and for that matter, completely gaslit political issue, then obviously the New York Times is coming for you. And they wrote a lengthy article about all of the major companies whose CEOs didn't come out and complain about the Georgia bill. Because again, we're now just at full-scale corporate blackmail now, is that capitalism is broken, because the corporations have gotten too woke and too concerned with the minutiae amount of people that troll Twitter to try to enact these sorts of changes that, that these corporations seem to think take up a much larger percentage of the population than they actually do. Many times, the people that make the biggest noise on social media aren't even people that patronize these companies to begin with, which is, which is funny because Coca-Cola is kind of finding out the opposite of that. Coca-Cola stuck their neck out on this Georgia bill, and suddenly Coca-Cola sales are going down because they've backtracked a little bit on their stance because conservatives actually have money and jobs and f disposable income and actually are out there spending their money on products like Coca-Cola and buying plane tickets through Delta Airlines. And, you know, they have things to do because they actually have lives. And so... Those are the people that when they boycott, it actually hits companies harder, and Coca-Cola found that out. 
as Dan Bongino's been talking about on his show, and he's been hosting Hannity a little bit, we don't have to outrun the bear. We just have to outrun the next guy. And I like that he's, I like this, this, first and foremost, I love, I love the, uh, I like the, the euphemism, but more importantly is that I think on the right, we look at all these boycotts and all this sort of stuff, and A, we don't really want to do them because it's just kind of cowardly and stupid, and it seems just childish, and, and I think a lot of us think we're above it. We might not be. We might have to start doing this sort of stuff. But then we get to the point to where if you're willing to do it, it gets a little overwhelming, right? How do you possibly boycott all of the companies that hate you and still live a comfortable life? Something I struggle with all the time. Again, big fan of the Marvel movies. I don't want to give Disney my money. But when Black Widow comes out, I'm fucking going to the theaters. Like, it's just happening. I'm sorry, folks. I'm trying to be as principled as I conceivably can be. But at the end of the day, I also have a life that I'd like to live and be happy with. And if I can't enjoy my freedoms, like going to see a movie when I want to fucking see one, then what the hell am I fighting for at the end of the day anyway? That said, we don't have to boycott all the companies. We just have to boycott one or two of them and make them really feel it. And the message will get out. So if we could boycott Coca-Cola and Coca-Cola see some some serious dips in their sales and they have to backtrack and they decide to stay out of politics for a while, we won. That's a win for us. We should we should probably explore doing that. And we don't have to boycott Amazon and Apple and Google and Delta and Major League Baseball and the NFL and all of these things all at once. I think we, we need to find somebody who can rally the troops. Uh, uh, you know, somebody who's got a really big audience, like a Shapiro, a ben, uh, Bongino, uh, you know, Rush before he passed. Somebody like that who could step up, and now Bongino is going to have that audience, so hopefully uh, he can he can use that. But we need to pick one or two, and we need to make them fucking feel it. And I don't know, you know, who gets to make that decision, but somebody's got to make it. And let's start with Coca Cola. Let's start with Major League Baseball. Let's make these places fucking hurt, and that way, the next time some company decides that they want to get woke, maybe they'll look at what happened before and just shut their fucking mouths and make sugar water and fly planes like they're supposed to. So that's that's it. Corporate blackmail, not cool, not a big fan on my front here. And uh, unfortunately, it's going to continue until we fight back. And unfortunately, we've got to fight fire with fire on this one. We're not going to be able to, to play the moral high ground from the sidelines and continue to give our money to organizations that hate us and then expect to win the battle on the culture front and on the corporate front. We, we, we just need to pick a few of these things, a few of these companies, and we need to make them you know, feel it. And hopefully Coca-Cola will be the first of many to which we do this too. So let me close out on a high note. Let's check in on the Neanderthals, right? I did a couple a show a couple episodes ago, Blue Anon versus the Neanderthals, the, the left-wing media and all of their wacky conspiracy theories about right-wingers and about Donald Trump and all that sort of stuff versus the Neanderthals, the people who thought, fuck masks and fuck lockdowns. They're not working. It's time to open things up because we're now at a point in this virus where despite the fact that Dr. Fauci doesn't want to recognize it, we're seeing lower numbers than we have at basically any point during the pandemic. In some of these states, Texas and Mississippi in particular, these were the Neanderthals that we were told uh, were obviously going to kill everybody by having the audacity to give their citizens their freedoms back. Well, here's an article from Newsweek. Texas and Mississippi see lowest COVID cases in almost a year, one month after lifting the mask mandate. So we were told everyone was going to die. Mind you, the states like Michigan are seeing higher cases now than they have during many points of this pandemic. And they've been locked down this entire time. Governor Milfi up there shutting down the, uh, 
you know, shutting down the certain shelves of, of grocery stores clearly wasn't as effective as she thought it was going to be because they're still having issues and may need to lock down again in Michigan. Meanwhile, Florida doing just fine. Texas and Mississippi, the, the fucking Neanderthals down there, we were going to see all these massive spikes. Not only are we not seeing spikes, but the cases are actually going down. And this has obviously led Dr. Fauci to be very confused. Here he is, our Lord and Savior, Dr. Fauci. And if you go to Texas, as you know, it looks like 2019. The restaurants and the bars are full and open. The ballparks are full. And yet we've seen cases and hospitalizations since then continue to tick downward. So what do you make of that as all of us look around and sort of try to consider how safe it is to get back to normal life? Yeah, you know, it's it can be confusing because you may see a lag and a delay because often you have to wait a few weeks before you see the effect of what you're doing right now. You know, there, there are a lot of things that go into that. I mean, when you say that they've they've had a lot of uh, activity on the outside, like ball games, I'm not really quite sure. It could be they're doing things outdoors. You know, it's very difficult to just one-on-one -on -one compare that. You just have to see in the long range. I hope they continue to tick down. If they do, that would be great. But there's always the concern when you pull back on methods, particularly things like indoor dining and bars that are crowded, you can see a delay and then all of a sudden tick right back up. We've been fooled before by situations where people begin to open up, nothing happens, and then all of a sudden, several weeks later, things start exploding on you. So we gotta be careful we don't prematurely judge that. Oh, Dr. Fauci's confused, guys. We're lost as a nation now. I mean, if he doesn't know absolutely every answer to every conceivable question, I mean, we might as well just fucking hand everything over to the Chinese now, right? I mean, we're pretty much fucked. This is the guy that we're all looking towards. This is our highest paid federal employee. We're all looking to him for assistance and for guidance, and he doesn't know. He, I mean, he's just totally befuddled by this whole thing. He was also totally befuddled by the line of questioning he got from Jim Jordan this week on, on the floor of Congress. So Fauci was in front of Congress again in front of the House of Representatives, or at least one of the one of the many, you know, stupid committees that they have there. They all basically do the same stupid shit, which is nothing. Uh, but Jim Jordan asking a bunch of questions of Dr. Fauci and like Jim Jordan's a loudmouth, and he certainly got his flaws, if you know the whole situation with the sexual scandal back in Ohio State and all that sort of stuff. But again, he's in the foxhole. He's very loud. He troubles the left tremendously because he asks very simple, very straightforward questions that most people want to know the answers to. And so he was grilling Dr. Fauci this week about when we can have our liberties back. Fauci turned it into a whole political theater thing saying like I don't I don't think of this as a as a liberty thing you know all right whatever Fauci no one gives a fuck what you think about anything but nevertheless uh apparently we all have to so here we are so Jim Jordan is asking him okay well what's the number Dr. Fauci when do we get our liberties back and this is how you know that this whole thing is a fucking game is that Dr. Fauci doesn't have an answer one would think the science would have an objective standard by which we can get to and return to normal. What's the number? 5,000 cases a day? 15,000 cases a day? What number do we need to get to and below for us to be able to go back to resuming our lives? And the fact that there isn't an answer to this is pretty damning because we know why there isn't an answer to this because as soon as we got to that answer, 
everyone would just drop what they were doing and go back to the way that things were, and they can't allow that. They need to make sure that everybody is compliant and at the whim of Dr. Fauci and President Houseplant and fucking Heels Up Harris, our vice president, who is still conspicuously absent at the border, which is apparently the only job she actually has. Very strange. Well, I mean, she's got another job, but I assume that she's found somebody other than Willie Brown to give it to these days. That said, Dr. Fauci, again, doesn't have an answer. The science should have an answer, right? He also was grilled over and over again by Jim Jordan, and he kept responding, well, my guidance is in line with the CDC. Okay, then what the fuck do we need Fauci for? If Fauci's just doing what the CDC tells him to do, what do we need Fauci for? I was told he's the expert and that he's been doing this for decades, and I've said as much. I mean, this is this is clearly not like a partisan guy, or at least we had no reason to believe that he was at the beginning. He obviously didn't like Trump very much and decided to go along with the left-wing narrative that Trump was you know, botching this thing, despite the fact that he would then himself say that every time I suggested something to President Trump, he would do what I told him to do. So it would seem sort of a weird thing to admit out loud that Donald Trump was doing everything he asked him to do and was simultaneously botching this whole thing. This is sort of like what happened when the, the Biden administration came in and they said, oh, well, we don't have any sort of plans for the vaccination, but we're going to keep the same guy in charge that was in charge during the prior administration that terribly botched this whole situation it's it's just it's just a bunch of ridiculous malarkey so much so that i'm using words like malarkey but it turns out that the neanderthals had had won the day right they, they got rid of the mask mandates they got rid of the lockdowns they have 100 percent indoors they got baseball stadiums filled up and there are no dramatic rises in cases as a matter of fact the cases continue to go down because we've hit a certain point folks and i've been telling you that this was going to happen for a long time and we may very well have actually approached it. We've hit a point to where, I don't want to call it herd immunity, but we've got a good percentage of the population is vaccinated. We've got a good percentage of the population has had this thing within the last six months to a year, so they're immune at least temporarily. And I believe we will find out when this is all said and done that there is a certain percentage of this population that is just immune to this thing full stop. And why might I be assuming that? Well, because, I mean, like many of you, I know a lot of essential workers. Fuck, I'm one of them, right? I was I was in close proximity with somebody who definitely had this thing. I was in a cubicle with him bullshitting. You know, he was, he was somebody I work with, and he was training me uh, to a certain extent or, or showing me how to do a couple of things. So he was in my cube with COVID all up in my face. Yeah, he was wearing a mask some of the time, but we're not very, you know, super strict about it at our office, particularly when we're working amongst our teams that we're always with anyway. I was right there. He was in my cubicle. I didn't get it. My girlfriend works out in the public. She's dealing with customers. She's like a customer-facing person. She's out there all the time, six days a week, has come into contact with people that have had this thing, hasn't gotten it. Uh, Glenn Beck, famous you know, conservative pundit and uh, radio host and, and talk show host and, and owner and operator of The Blaze, his wife had it. He was sleeping with her for a week. He didn't get it. A certain percentage of us are just immune to this. I think that I think that's safe to say, given enough anecdotal evidence, and and there's a million stories like the ones I just told you, particularly the one with Glenn, where people were living and exchanging bodily fluids at occasion on occasion with people that eventually turned out to have it, and they didn't get it themselves. So we've we've pretty much hit a point now where there's only but so many people who can get this thing, and I think that's why you're seeing the numbers dwindle and dwindle and dwindle. 
Meanwhile, some of the states where you have the lockdowns, you have people who have vastly compromised immune systems and are now probably more likely to get this thing than they were at the beginning of all this because they haven't been outside for 18 months or whatever the fuck it's been. 15 days, right? That's all it was. So that's about it. The Neanderthals win the day. Gun control now is uh, hopefully gun control never. The Derek Chauvin trial is ongoing. We actually will supposedly have a verdict on that in the not-too-distant future, so I'll put my official pick down. I think he's going to get manslaughter. I don't think he'll get either of the murder charges, and uh, the city of Minneapolis will burn if it isn't already doing so. Uh, Matt Gates, we'll see what happens there, and Ron DeSantis continues to be Ron DeSantis, and I love him for it because it pisses off the left, and uh, really, that's, that's really what I'm just trying to do at the end of the day is piss off the left. I, I've once, you know, used to do podcasts, and I used to tell you guys out there, don't worry, I got this podcasting shit, don't do one of your own. I've since reversed course on this. I think we need more voices out there like mine, more voices like yours, so fuck, start a, start a Substack, start a uh, a podcast, start a blog, start a, a Facebook group, whatever you got to do. I got a buddy of mine who just decided to get into local politics recently, so hats off to Ron, I hope he's doing well. And I hope he, I hope he gets, you know, gets his seat and, and is able to enact some change on even a small scale and get his foot in the door and help shape the Republican Party moving forward. Uh, good luck to him. And uh, when he gives me more details about the campaign, I'll, I'll drop some stuff on here. I told him I would definitely use this platform to try to help him in any of his endeavors. He's one of the good ones, and he's a Republican. And uh, like I said, we need we need more voices out there like mine, like yours, and he's one of them. So uh, good luck to Ron. I hope everything works out with him there. Uh, he's running for uh, county committee here in uh, Morris County, New Jersey. I say here. I don't actually live in Morris County, but that's where I lived at one point, and that's how I knew him. So, uh, hey, good luck to him and good luck to anybody else out there. Look, I mean, I wish I had the time. I barely have the time to do these podcasts. So I obviously don't have the time to take on a second career Never mind one that involves, you know, monthly meetings and all that good stuff. But um, Ron seemed to, to think he can handle it, and uh, and I'm sure he can, and I'm sure he's going to be a tremendous service to the state of New Jersey if and when he gets in there. So, uh, like I said, if I have more details about that, I'll definitely drop him in here. Good luck to him once more. And that brings me to the end of the show, folks. I got nothing else for you other than to tell you to follow me on social media. That's Twitter, Parler, Instagram, and Substack at Right Opinion Pod and Substack. It's just rightopinionpod.substack.com. And uh, also check out the uh, the podcast on the rightopinion.podbean.com or iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, hominmediagroup.podbean.com and ratsaladreview.com and many other places. Again, it's the thumbnail that's black and white and red all over like the New York Times used to be. And uh, now I got all the social media stuff out of the way. I got the Substack shit in. Check out the merch store in the links. I'm going to actually put the link because I think I've been saying that the link is there and then it's not actually there. I'm going to make sure I get it in this week and check out some of the articles in the show notes as always. Check out the Substack once more. And it's that time where I have to remind you that opinions are like assholes. Everybody's got one. But this asshole has the right opinion and you only get it right here on the rightopinion.podbean.com and all those other places, but most importantly, right here on the Right Opinion Podcast. I've been Harrison Bergeron. You guys have been awesome, and I'll talk to you next time. Peace. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Be the elephant in the room in a room full of elephants. Boom. Boom.